What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nuclear Barbarians. It is I, your nuclear barbarian. I've just had pre-workout. I'm fired up and ready to go. Chris Kiefer is here. You guys already know him. We're going to talk about what the hell is going up in Canada. Chris, how's it hanging? It's going great, Emmett. Thanks for having me on, man. That's right. Put your headphones on. Strap in. It's about to get buck wild because my favorite Canuck in the world is kicking shit up in Canada. Hold um, hold, hold the fuck on there, because we both know Canada Mike, and we both love Canada Mike. I don't want to get true. into a favoritism game. <laughs> Nuclear Barbarians know. might not know who that is. You should go to my other podcast, Exhaust, <laughs> to figure out who Canada Mike is. But He's a mutual and, buddy now. So Yeah, he's a mutual buddy. So let's, let's talk about it, man. You've been up to a bunch. I'm late in terms of what's going on with Pickering, but you've been so busy, a lot more has since then. So let's just catch us up. What's going on with Pickering? Well, after being the lone voice, you know, in the wilderness of, of Canadian nuclear, in the wilderness of Canadian civil society, in the wilderness of, you know, Canadian environmentalism, my organization led the charge on a campaign, a successful campaign to life extend and investigate the refurbishment of the Pickering nuclear station. So we have three large reactor stations in, in Ontario. One of them is the world's largest operating at about 6,500 megawatts. And then we have two stations at around 3,000 megawatts. All of these are candy reactors with at least a 60 to 80 year lifespan if they have a midlife refurbishment at the 30 to 40 year mark. The, almost the entire fleet is getting that refurbishment, but Pickering got left out, got left out of the club. And so my organization fought through thick and thin for this plant. I do affectionately call it the sister plant to Diablo Canyon. And through yeah. some very interesting strategy, some you know blood, sweat and tears, but particularly, and I think this will be fun to talk about today, um, links with the labor movement, we were able to get a detailed policy report in front of key decision makers, including the premier and the minister of energy, minister of labor. And our template was, this, our, our report was essentially the template for the announcement that was made. And boy, was it ever a litmus test for, you know, is it safe for a politician to be pro-nuclear in Canada? Hell yeah. I mean, the, the media coverage was basically universally positive. Positive Environmental groups were silent, didn't even issue statements. The only one that did, our favorite Ontario Green Air Alliance, who are basically a gas lobby, they were diffused by Asthma Canada actually endorsing the life extension and refurbishment as any clean air society should. Um, so it was a really monumentous occasion and something that was intensely gratifying for my organization and other folks that had worked so hard in this campaign to have pulled off what we all thought was a long shot. I mean, I got inspired to fight for this really by my brothers and sisters in the struggle for Indian points Azuru and Dietmar were particularly influential. You know, they knew that they'd come into the battle a little too late to save Indian point. It's a tragedy, the timing on that. If Indian point was scheduled mm -hmm. to close, you know, this December, it wouldn't happen. But despite it being essentially a lost cause for them, they made the most incredible, you know, policy materials. They had a long fought battle. They made that costly to the NRDC. And frankly, I was inspired. I thought there wasn't a chance to save the plant, but I said, I'm going to fight like hell and I'm never going to give up. And well, you know, our timing was slightly better. Our materials were excellent. And again, this theory of change of, you know, who are the patrons of nuclear? It's physics and it's labor. And, you know, labor really deserves a huge credit as well for, for having delivered this victory. That's amazing, man. So, so what are the next steps sort of in this process? Like what, what needs to happen for like totally assured victory? 
Yeah, I mean, so listen, the the life extension and the refurbishment have to be approved by the Canadian Nuclear Safety Council. My fear was that the owner of the plants, Ontario Power Generation, might say, eh, we'll look into the refurbishment and do it kind of half-heartedly. But my intel from very highly placed people in the plant who've become good friends of mine is that the directive from, from the, the utility was, don't just try and make this happen, make it happen. We need this to happen. So you know, wow. they're having a serious look at it. And all of my intel from across, you know, labor, government and the utility are that, you know, this is uh, they're giving it their best college try. And I think I think it's inevitable because otherwise we're going to be facing, you know, brownout and blackout conditions and serious limitations in our ability to reshore critical industry. And that's that's all the fad right now. Right. We're trying to friend shore. We're in an unfriendly geopolitical environment. The end of history ended. <laughs> Mm-hmm. The march, the march to benevolent and benign liberal democracy, liberal capitalist democracies is is over. We're in a fractured world. We're we're reshoring. We're going to need the energy. So it's it's a really exciting historical moment that's opened up some some interesting possibilities. Man, man, that's amazing, dude. I'm so happy for you. I think there's a lot to learn here. I'm also happy for Canada that it's NGO civil society is not anywhere near as muscular as ours because it makes it, that's one less moat to have to overcome, right? And I think that that's, that's awesome. That's like way more democratic, right? You know, we're going to be honest. You know, it's easy to romanticize, you know, Canada, I think for a lot of Americans, but you know, you have Gina McCarthy as the climate advisor in the Biden administration. Former, she just left. All right. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, in any case, you know, in Canada, we kind of joke that, you know, we're not really a democracy. I mean, first off, we're a constitutional monarchy. Our head of state is Queen Elizabeth. Well, we're a republic. We're not really a democracy either. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But, but secondarily, really, Canada has been referred to as the dictatorship of the prime minister's office. Despite the fact that we don't directly elect our prime minister, that's just the leader of the party that gets the most votes and can form government. Um, quite often policy filters down directly from that office and the members of that office and looking huge. I can see even working that uh, arm wrestling game of yours. Anyway, dude, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying to get like Dylan. I'm trying to get like Dylan. (laughs) Anyway, the the members of the prime minister's office are, are hugely powerful. And in Canada, many of those are actually from the world wildlife federation. So, you know, the highest office in our land has been infiltrated by the environmental movement and a really interesting piece of news out of British Columbia in Canada. There were two candidates to take over the leadership of the new democratic party. That's essentially Canada's left-wing labor party, Mm -hmm. at least it used to be kind of left wing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's become an acclaimed race because one of the candidates was DQ'd because they'd been using an environmentalist organization's emailing list and kind of illegal campaigning by that environmental organization, paying for memberships for people, getting Green Party members to swap over to the NDP for their leadership vote to get in this environmentalist leadership candidate. And she was disqualified by the party you know, because of this undue influence. And can you imagine who would her chief of staff have been? You know, who would have been yeah. a sort of deep state? I, mean, I guess it's not accurate deep state, but who would have been her key political staffers and how would they have shifted the agenda? Totally. And, you know, I think, I think I've been thinking about this a lot recently, but, you know, progressive, quote unquote, progressive political parties are in a major crisis and they have to make a very rapid decision because they've been infiltrated to the highest level by the environmentalist movement 
with a degrowth agenda, something that's mm-hmm. profoundly unfriendly to labor, to the origins of these political movements. And they have to make a choice, lickety split, to determine their political relevancy. And that's between an allegiance to blue collar labor or to you know an elite pseudo-environmentalist tendency, again, which has infiltrated these parties to the highest level. So, you know, Emmett, beyond the Pickering victory, I just got back from what has been called by a journalist, a lobbying spree in, mm-hmm. in Ottawa, where you know, I, I rub shoulders with a lot of political leaders. I'm really getting a sense of how the sausage gets made. It's it's just fascinating up here in Canada, but I won't I won't rant on too long. Ottawa, home of my favorite arm wrestling club, the Ottawa High Hookers. So, all right, we've got all of this good news. We have got your lobbying spree, and it, now it seems that we've also got a scandal on our hands that you've just sort of talked with our mutual friend, the Aussie himself, James Flay, who's been on this podcast. What What's going on with wind in Canada and hydrogen in Canada and more of this energy bullshittery? Well, let me, let me tie the whole story together. Yeah. It's, it's good. It's good. So fresh off the Pickering victory, I called some of my friends in the, in the governing liberal party federally. And I said, you know, this this announcement was a litmus test again for whether it's safe to talk publicly about nuclear and also this announcement is symbolic of a new alliance between populist right-wing governments and the people who take showers after work okay so mm-hmm. the private sector skilled trades unions endorsed Doug Ford who is the premier or governor if you will of Ontario and it basically landed him with an unassailable electoral alliance absent some huge scandal this guy's going to be in power for a long time because, you know, the the opposition is a Labour Party, the New Democratic Party, which actually lost nine seats to him in a re-election because he took those blue collar districts away. And I called my my federal liberal friends and I said, listen, look at a map of the Ontario political outcomes and overlay that with the federal ones. You have a whole bunch of federal seats that are in play now. And what's happened in Ontario is playing out nationally because we now have a right wing populist opposition leader playing the exact same game. So again, I was saying to these liberals, you need to smarten up to sweet and decide, are you going to be the party of the World Wildlife Fund? Or are you going to be the party of, you know, skilled trade of, of blue collar workers of everyday Canadians? And you need to make that decision fast because, you know, you could lose your seats, you could lose government. Mm, and, mm. you know, it's always you, tr- you try with these arguments, you know, the, the higher level arguments around climate change, around air pollution. When you tell a politician you could lose your seat if you don't smarten up, they, they listen up quick. And so I got an invite to come speak to them. Now, I went to speak to them basically several days before the deputy prime minister of Canada, Christian Freeland, was at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C., saying, we're going to have to spend political capital to fast track energy and mining projects in order to assist our European allies to liberate themselves from petro tyrants. I mean, that could be a good thing, Mm. but she wasn't talking about LNG. She wasn't talking about uranium. She wasn't talking about our nuclear technology. The example that she gave, because she said this should also be low carbon. The example she gave was the Canada-Germany Hydrogen Alliance. Now, you know, this was announced about two months ago when German Chancellor Olaf Scholz came to Canada. Yeah, I remember that. His visit was also because Canada broke sanctions to ship turbines that the Russians required for Nord Stream pipeline. 
we broke sanctions that we'll send That's those right. worry, we'll send those back to you because we don't want our german allies to get too too fucked i mean say what you want about that decision maybe it was pragmatic allyship with with germany maybe it was a cowardly betrayal of the ukrainians Either way it doesn't matter now <laughs> maybe it was all the above but it doesn't matter because those pipelines no longer exist anyway on that visit he basically came begging for a canadian lng and he was told by justin trudeau there's no business case for lng despite you know, the Dutch TTF trading at something like 50 versus, you know, North America, you know, Henry Hub or Canada's even lower, you know, prices of, you know, five, it went, six. It almost went negative at Waha in the Permian Basin earlier this week, like two days but ago. No business case for Canadian LNG, but there is a business case apparently for something called the Canada German Hydrogen Alliance. So what is that, Emmett? What is that? Basically, tell me. I'll just speak on it, brother. Speak on it. <laughs> speak. So basically, it's the equivalent of building. Every wind turbine we've put up in Canada so far, erecting those, again, that number of turbines on the east coast of Canada, some onshore, some offshore, hooking that fleet up to electrolyzers, cracking, you know, ultra pure distilled water into hydrogen, running it through the Haber-Bosch process. Yeah, I use a little bit of energy for that. You know, just remember Haber-Bosch <laughs> consumes about 2% of global primary energy because we'll all starve to death without, you know, ammonia mm -hmm. and fertilizer. Anyway, we're going to make ammonia out of that. And then we're going to ship it across the Atlantic in about 60 to 100 massive ships every year to Germany for them to burn in their power plants. And I did a really great episode with James Flea on this, and it's quite technical. It's quite a deep dive. I'm really glad I did go back to university for medicine and, and do all my first year sciences. But I mean, the round trip efficiency on this without even the, the transatlantic shipping or the you know reconversion of ammonia potentially into hydrogen in Germany is 22%. Just you know, electrolyzed hydrogen from wind to ammonia to burning it is 22%. So I'm kind of comparing this. It's sort of like the Drax scandal, the biomass burning plant Drax, which harvests supposedly just, you know, wood waste from clear cuts. There's documented evidence, by the way, our investigative program in Canada has reported on primary forests that have been logged and turned not into lumber, but into wood pellets to be shipped all the way across the continent of North America by trucker train and then, you know, pelleted enough to the UK to burn in a four gigawatt biomass plant. This is a similar kind of green scheme that is, you couldn't imagine a more environmentally destructive scheme, right? And this is somehow supposed to bail out the Germans. The, the, the kind of immoral crime of all this is that we're in the midst of a global fertilizer shortage. We'd be creating ammonia in a very inefficient and expensive manner. And then they would be burning it in Germany, lighting fertilizer on fire. Okay. But it's even worse than this because apparently, according to James Flea and his combustion engineer friends, you can't just burn ammonia alone. You need to throw yeah. it into a hot furnace. And currently, the only place that we're burning ammonia is as a kind of afterburner in Japanese coal plants. So you're throwing fertilizer into a coal plant in the midst yeah. of a global energy crisis when your concern is apparently the environment <laughs> and, and climate. Oh, and by the way, you're gonna fund this all, it sounds like, with a production tax credit. So, you know, rich investment banks can not pay their taxes, not fund the basic services we require as a society. So they can grift and make money that's government backed off of a project that is a thermodynamic fraud and is looking to be a political scandal in the making. There's some interesting stuff happening where one of the, the Canadian billionaires, John Risley, who's a big backer of, of one of these wind projects, has been whining and dining provincial and federal politicians on luxury trips. Again, that that is still a story in the making, and I really don't want to get sued or, or uh, 
my friend was joking if we lived in Russia I would have been defenestrated by now yeah uh, anyway so it's 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 been a, a wild time Emmett and and that's not all because there's also the one billion dollar announcement of federal financing for the West first SMR we'll get to that I'm sure yeah so the hydrogen thing seems like sort of the typical boondoggle here. I mean, this, this stuff's just everywhere, right? Like you're just going to have major forces of capital lining up to the trough of the state to try to hoover up whatever money they can. This is made worse by sort of a collapse of engineering discipline across the West. So really money for industrial projects ends up just being these production tax credits or whatever, which are just, you know, pay to play financial giveaways to banks, et cetera. It doesn't really have anything to do with like making stuff. What's been the response in Canada to this hydrogen thing? Do people love it? Do people hate it? Do people not care? Are you trying to make them care? <laughs> What's going on? Listen, I've, I've, I've talked to people within the Canadian you know, civil service, people within mm -hmm. Natural Resources Canada. Of course, I will not name any names. And the quote that I've been given is, because I said, listen, like you guys are, are scientists, you're experts, you have the engineering discipline. How are you not advising the minister that this is an insane idea? And the quote was, we give fearless advice and loyal implementation. Right. Mm. I, I just cannot imagine having to do that. I, I simply couldn't do that. I, I would see that as anyway, I don't want to make any comments, but I mean, what, what a sad state of affairs. I mean, in general, as is to be expected, energy literacy is incredibly low amongst the general public. It, you know, I was energy literate as of, you know, three, four years ago. Dude, I'm learning, learning something every day, every day. Right. And so, you know, there's all of this marketing as well with, you know, essentially making the category error and thinking that, you know, water is the new methane and that hydrogen basically is just water. You know, there's all this corporate, you know, graphic design of little drops of water with nice ripples. You know, it's, it's fantastical and it's amazing, you know, how, how you can pull this over on a gullible general public, but you know, there's this constant mistake of hydrogen being seen as a fuel or as a source of energy and not an expensive carrier molecule. You know, someone who I look up to on the hydrogen issue, he's a, he's a process engineer named Paul Martin, really bad on nuclear, but he's good on hydrogen. And he says, you know, hydrogen is a decarbonization problem far mm. before it's ever a decarbonization solution. Because, you know, we produce an enormous amount of black hydrogen in order to make fertilizer that would be required, that is required so that half of the world's population doesn't starve to death. Like our first job with hydrogen is just decarbonizing what we already need for fertilizer. And that is a massive amount of hydrogen. Yeah. So jumping ahead of the queue and saying we're going to burn this stuff as fuel is insane. I mean, it's it's an use case, which is marginal, you know, even if we had a plethora of excess energy and, you know, nuclear reactors that could just churn out endless hydrogen. That's a long ways off, if ever. And it's still not a great end use case for hydrogen. But unfortunately, yeah, there's there's a lot of energy literacy and there's a lot of grifters that are, you know, more than willing to take advantage of a gullible public on this. You know, Michael Liebreich gave an interesting address to the World Hydrogen Conference where he basically rubbed it in their faces. It was good to see. So hopefully this hydrogen bubble is bursting. But, you know, right now that's what's being held up as Canada's, you know, low, low carbon export to the world. Wow. While our uranium sector offsets fully one third of Canada's all sector emissions, we put out 730 megatons a year, the, the avoided carbon from uranium in our nuclear plants and international plants that use our fuel is 230 megatons. You know, the oil patch puts 80 megatons of CO2 into the atmosphere. Our uranium mines reverse that, you know, twofold, right? So 
it's just a failure of education to the public. And, you know, I feel very, very motivated to go after this Canada-Germany hydrogen alliance, A, because it's a fraud, B, because it's just a massive misallocation of resources, and C, because, you know, I smell a rat and this stinks. Mm. And, you know, mm. every dollar spent on a useless energy project is a dollar not spent on schools, on healthcare, on, you know, paying our nurses what they need so our healthcare system doesn't cr- collapse, et cetera, right? Like, the easy days are over. I was just giving a, a talk in, in to, a, to a group in Hong Kong this morning, and I was referencing Ering and Rosenzweig, who were saying that, you know, between 2010 and 2010 and 2020, all sources of primary energy, coal, gas, petroleum, uranium dropped 90% in price from peak to trough. These were this was an easy decade of cheap energy. And from their analysis of, you know, cheap capital, low interest rates, we saw the cheapest capital in 4,000 years between the decade, between 2010 and 2020. I mean, this was an easy decade. It was soft times, making soft energy. We didn't have to make any ruthless, difficult choices. That has all changed so dramatically in the last two or three years. And we really, you know, and energy educators really need to come to the forefront to help you know, snap us back into a sense of reality and pragmatism so that we allocate what are now very scarce resources to the best end use for the well-being of of humanity. I mean, this sounds very mm-hmm. grandiose, but I mean, that's that's the mission before us. And I take it very seriously. Yeah, I mean, me too. I think that's the... Yeah, I mean, I was taking a look at global investments in ONG has like dropped by half or something like that in the last decade. You know, yeah. like when that happens, you're you're cruising for a bruising. Like it's about to get weird. You know, it seems like Europe is going to have a mild winter. Thank God. You know, like I don't want like I'm not like licking my chops like, right. oh, yeah, like, you know, I hope they all suffer and die in the cold, right. you know. But how ironic is it, Emmett, that they're being saved by climate change? Well, right. Well, the other thing is, is that no matter how it goes, next winter is going to be harder. Yeah. You know, because sure, they can get everything they need now. But what about next year? Yeah. Like when they don't when they're not buying up whatever they can from Russia before it's, you know, and and it's not like we're expanding production either. OPEC has been pretty clear that it's not going to do that in part because Russia is a member of OPEC plus. And so if everybody's sanctioning Russian output, like they're not going to produce that much, you know? So this is a really, this is a really scary scenario we're going in. The margin for error is getting thinner and it's ridiculous that our leadership is of such low caliber, it's easily seduced by what is frankly ad copy. Yeah. And that's what's happening here. So let's pivot away from hydrogen and towards this one billy for an SMR project. Well, fill me in on this. Well, I mean, this is interesting because this may well be a poisonous kiss. And, you know, this is kind of, this is just breaking analysis that I'm kind of coming to today. But, you know, as of as late as 2012, there was talk about building four large candus in Alberta. There was talk about building more new candus in Ontario here at a former coal site. It feels like candu, our national reactor technology, like it's, you know, there are four or five reactor designs that have really made it around the world. It's extraordinary that Canada was a, has been a global player and created a viable design that is working great, that is kicking ass mm-hmm. and making medical isotopes at the same time. And you still have some unfinished ones in what, Romania? We sure do. We sure yeah. do, right? The SMR hype over the last decade, it, it's what I'm saying is that Canada is potentially committing techno side of, of, of our reactor technology, of the can-do. And, you know, 
I'm, I always try and challenge myself. I always try and entertain cognitive dissonance, but it does seem insane to me that the entire Canadian nuclear industry supply chain is, is sleepwalking into the death of our national technology, our national reactor design, our national supply chain. Canada is entirely geared up around the pressurized heavy water reactor known as the Candu. Our, our uranium is mined, it is pelleted, it is turned into fuel assemblies. You know, our, our whole supply chain is geared up around the maintenance, construction, refurbishment of, of Candu reactors. And we're, we're introducing a new technology. Again, some people say, ooh, this is SMR, this is untested technology. Absolutely not. This is the 10th generation of a boiling water design, very technologically conservative. That's what's being built at Darlington, this BWRX 300. It, it, there are arguments for it, you know, a, a BWR, it, you know, it's just kind of like some fuel elements in a pressure cooker. It's, it's a very simple design, maybe elegant in its simplicity. Mm -hmm. And you look at a can do schematic and you go, holy shit, there's 480 pressure, pressure sure, tubes. Yeah. And each of them have a feeder pipe in and out each end. Right. I mean, Candu is the true modular reactor and that the core is modular. Mm -hmm. You know, we have 480, you know, six megawatt reactors essentially <laughs> running in parallel. But in any case, without diverting too much into reactor technology and physics, which I'm no expert in, it is very interesting. We've been working hard on the federal level to, to lobby this government to clarify its contradictory approach to nuclear energy, because as you will recall, probably from a previous episode with you, um, Canada excluded nuclear from its green bond financing mechanism, labeling mm -hmm. it essentially a sin stock alongside tobacco, gambling, firearms, et cetera. I think in part due to our advocacy this spring on that issue, you know, when I met with the liberal caucus members and cabinet ministers, they said, listen, like we're going to lose face essentially if we, if we do a flip-flop on this and put nuclear on the green bond, that's been kind of decided at a higher level by certain anti-nuclear cabinet sure, ministers. Yeah. Is there anything Typical. else we can do? And we said, well, of course, like we have a $1 billion Canada infrastructure bank that can, that can spend some money. So include, include nuclear within its mandate. And that did happen. That was a victory that I think we were partially responsible for this spring. So what's happened is, you know, OPG is, is the, has the only licensed site to build new nuclear in North America. And these are precious, precious sites, particularly in Canada, because our federal government has created an environmental assessment process that takes about eight years to wind through. So we're supposed to have a totally decarbonized grid by 2035. But you, it would take you eight years just to do the environmental assessment part of permitting a new nuclear site. And that's not even, you can't even add new reactors on an existing nuclear site. You still need to go through an eight-year process for that. Of right? course. Some of the most environmentally monitored sites in the world are nuclear sites. So there's this kind of regulatory obstructionism. We have this one precious site. It's licensed for 4,800 megawatts. And the plan as it stands right now is to build 1,200 megawatts or four of these small modular reactors. Now, this, of course, is occurring in the context of skyrocketing demand as we pursue electrification goals, as we attract a lot of manufacturing, you know, we reshore a lot of things, we install electric arc furnaces to create low carbon steel, we're going to see huge demand increase on our grid. And rather than building some big boys to handle that load, we're going to use the only license site we have to build four small SMRs. Now, don't get me wrong, I am nuanced on this. There's certainly a role for SMRs, particularly in smaller locations, you know, countries that are new to nuclear. It's probably good that they get started that way. You don't want a single power plant that's more than 10% of your grid size. Yeah. So there's a role for it. We're a nuclear leader. We're a tier one nuclear nation. We are the best equipped nation in the West to build nuclear because of our refurbishment program where we have 30,000 people essentially renovating our Candu reactor fleet. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a role to doing an SMR or two. Um, but the way that this is heading is really looking like all government support 
it's good that they're supporting nuclear, but it's only going to be for SMRs. And it's going to leave Candu and our existing industry completely in the lurch and actually make them uncompetitive. And our, our refurbishments of our large Candu stations are not locked in. There's so-called off-ramps if there's more competitive ways to have that power generation. And so, you know, there's a certain degree of trepidation from within the existing industry. And let's face it, there is no SMR industry yet. Nothing's been built. Yeah. There's just kind of empty offices and consultants and people getting geared up. But this could well be a poisonous kiss for our entire nuclear industry and supply chain. And, you know, I do hope that we're able to onshore as much of the BWX supply chain as possible. Certainly, we don't have the fuel fabrication as we do with Candu. You know, there's this is a, you know, a Japanese and, and U.S. company. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very nuanced. I mean, I wish I could say I was completely happy. I was delighted with the Pickering refurbishment announcement. I do think there's a role for SMRs and for Canada to play a role. But we cannot let Candu go the way of our Avro era, which was the world's best fighter jet that was, you know, created in Canada and scrapped as a result of, of a, you know, poor set of decision making, shall we say. Big long rant there. But yeah, I mean, this is nuanced. I mean, again, it is, you know, I guess the TLDR or too long didn't listen to Kiefer's rant is that this is historic. Uh, the, go- the the federal government, which has been quite anti-nuclear, has ponied up a billion dollars. Their talking points are starting to sound a hell of a lot like Canadian for Nuclear Energy's talking points, but that this is complex. This is complex. And we may be facing, you know, a techno side of, of Canadian reactor technology, Canada's supply chain. We need to be very vigilant for that. We should do an SMR or two, but we cannot let go of CANDU. And we have the only licensed site in North America. We need to build a lot of megs. We need to do some enhanced CANDU sixes at that site as well. That's 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 you know my my position after careful analysis. Yeah, I mean that sounds fair. Like I think that the BWXR is the probably the most convincing of the advanced technologies that I've seen. Again, I'm no reactor expert. But, I mean, but, it's um, not an advanced technology. Like, let's be crystal clear about this. Right, right. Yeah. It's like, as you said, that's why it's the most convincing. It's right? a scale it's because down. it's the oldest. It's a scaled down boiling water reactor. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's because it's like not trying to be cutting edge that it's convincing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. As like yeah. an SMR, which, you know, the shorthand for which is advanced for whatever silly reason but i hear you is there any potential is there any appetite for building canadus abroad for finishing what's in romania like could that be another way that the supply chain is maintained in canada where you guys have like an aggressive international building thing for new candus and then you're sort of interested in investing in smrs at home like i get that that might not be ideal for you but you can sort of see like i'm asking like is there a splitting the different like this will get decided politically so everybody's gonna have to give a little to get a little like am i in the ballpark here does anybody give a shit about this or no no i mean it is it is curious you know china was going to finance the finishing of so there's four candus in romania two of them were completed two are unfinished and those two unfinished units, there's a big, you know, desire to get those online, particularly during the, you know, the current geopolitical crisis yeah. with Russia, right? That's a no-brainer. China was going to finance them. The U.S. said, hell no, this is our backyard. We'll finance them. We'll finance Canadian technology, right? Mm-hmm. So Canada has a huge opportunity here to, to, you know, use our supply chain, our reactor design. We can really deploy the enhanced CANDU-6 here, which is essentially what's what was part, part finished. We've now updated the controls and some other elements, made some improvements. So we... We could really get the enhanced Candu 6, which is a fully licensed design built in Romania, cost it out and figure out, you know, is it competitive? Can we build it at home? 
it's a huge opportunity. It will require some Canadian collaboration, investment. You know, if you want as much CanCon, Canadian content as possible in there, they're going to have to put some money at it. But that's a that's a no-brainer. That's an immediate way you can help a European ally. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you're interested in helping liberate them from petro tyrants, right? So that that's definitely an option. You know, we are ramped up, right? We're, we're, we have a $26 billion refurbishment process right now. There's 30,000 30, people working directly in the refurbishment supply chain. We're humming. But Emmett, it's interesting. I mean, I was talking to a friend in the industry and they were saying, I had to get some scaffolding put up in my plant the other day. I can only find one carpenter. Like you need a team of carpenters to put up scaffolding, just putting up fucking scaffolding. Mm-hmm. Like we have a human resources limitation here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in my naive days, I was just like, just got to keep those fossil fuels in the ground. And we just have to do a global mesmer plan. Oh, right. It takes fossil fuels to run the factories. Make to all that. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Anyway, all that naivete aside. You know, we've done a show on Decouple about that, the preconditions of the Mesmer plan. We are not in those preconditions. We've deindustrialized a lot, but more importantly, we have a combined impact of a demographic collapse. There's just less kids being born. You know, the wealthy world, particularly the kind of settler colony world is lucky because we have immigration policies where we can sort of pilfer well-trained people from around the world. But, you know, what the what the world, the advanced world is facing in particular is a demographic collapse. We don't have a lot of skilled tradespeople. They're aging out. They're in their 50s, 60s. Those are some of the mm-hmm. average ages in some of the relevant fields. And so, you know, with nuclear, it's so design focused, like, oh, my new reactor design is what's going to, you know, deliver utopia. And it's like, no, it comes down to the nuts and bolts. And fundamentally, it comes down to the people, because if you don't have the skilled people to build the stuff, it's not going to happen. And that's what we're running into in terms of critical limitation. Can we do the X300? Can we refurbish Pickering? Can we do Romania at the same time? We may just run into the human resources. And, you know, what's so precious about a nuclear plant? Like when I go up and visit the Bruce Nuclear Generating Station, the world's largest operating nuclear station, it's in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And you have this town with tens of thousands of brilliant people, all with specialties and higher education and, you know, high, high skills in terms of their, their trades. Nuclear is such a generation of human potential. It's it's awe-inspiring, but like we're going to really need to invest in that to to train up our own people to create immigration processes that that favor not just, you know, people with PhDs and master's degrees, but people with actual blue-collar skills. So that that's kind of another um realization I've had recently in addition to progressive politics needing to speak again to the heroes of the energy transition, right? If they want to be politically relevant, they've got to do that. Otherwise those folks are going over to, you know, right-wing populism. But Mm -hmm. I think again, just to throw some respect on, you know, the working people that actually swing hammers and and pipe fit and do whatever else, that is a a huge missing link here. And that's a a real limitation on what our, you know, full potential will be as as a nuclear country, you know, abroad as well as domestically. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this stuff is just, tragically more pain is required and even that's not sufficient as a disciplining and educating tool uh for what's actually going to be required in the near medium and long term i think so it's good that you're out there putting the political pressure on all of this and speaking of let me just ask you what like what's what's next for you and for canadians for nuclear energy like let's say obviously you're working on the pickering thing but what's coming after that, right? Because you don't want you don't want your victory to become its own defeat. Oh hell no, no. We we're endlessly ambitious. We have about four projects on the go. I guess the lower priority ones. I gave testimony at the House of Commons on the just transition, and I think it's so important that we 
sees that debate back from academic grifters who are more interested in marketing around, you know, actors in hard hats with uh, reflective vests posing in front of wind and solar, you know, equipment, and really center that discussion on, you know, what technologies can deliver a just transition, that the just transition is technologically specific. We're working on turning that into a report. I'm excited about that. You know, obviously the green bond, having nuclear in the green bond is important. This this announcement today is huge. It's absolutely nonsensical for the government to still say, hey, it's gambling, it's smoking, it's tobacco, it's firearms. And by the way, we're giving a billion dollars to uh, build an SMR. I think that's right. going to kind of unravel on its own. But again, you know, we were the lone voice for Pickering. And I think we're turning into the lone voice for CANDU. Um, mm -hmm. We're working on a report called The Past, Present and Future of CANDU. And what's interesting about that report and what's interesting about the history of CANDU is that it emerges at a very similar time as our own in the midst of an energy mm -hmm. crisis. You know, CANDU was the ultimate energy security and economic development play, particularly for Ontario. We didn't have coal in Ontario, for instance, right? We had uranium. We had the Elliott Lake mine. It was one of the best ore deposits. Now we found far better stuff in Saskatchewan. But in any case, nuclear was used. It's a very similar story to France. Like, we do not have coal. We do not have oil, but we have ideas. We did that in Ontario. Like, it's a beautiful similarity in that story. And it was a response to a very similar dynamic of energy crisis. And, you know, again, CANDU offers that. We, we control the entire supply chain. It's got the ultimate economic multiplier effect. You, you invest a dollar in Canada, you get a dollar 40 back in GDP activity. There's no trade deficit. Nothing leaves the goddamn country, right? So this is unambiguously good for us. And we are in similar times with this kind of end of the end of the end of history and, you know, a, a dramatic change in the geopolitical world order. So that makes Candu relevant again. Of course, the past of Candu also involves all of its achievements you know, we're the, we're the second largest source of electricity in this country, powered the, the largest greenhouse gas reduction in North American history by powering the, the Ontario coal phase out, you know, eliminated smog days in the city I live in. The present of CANDU is our refurbishment program, which is an enormous economic driver. Again, that econ economic multiplier effect in full force there. Our pivot into medical isotope production, where we become an absolute indispensable powerhouse, mm -hmm. producing enough cobalt-60 to sterilize 40% of the world's single-use medical devices and a number of specialized wow. isotopes for other cancer treatments. And of course, the future is building new CANDU, not letting this technology go to waste. And so very specifically, that means building some enhanced CANDU 6s at the only licensed site in North America now and planning more CANDU 6s for when those 30,000 refurbishment workers finish up their jobs at the Bruce, Darlington, and Pickering nuclear station so they can go hammer in hand, intimately familiar with the reactor internals of a CANDU, and go build some more, um, because that's what we need to do. So that report, I'm really excited about. You know, I say we're a lone voice, but that is not a lone impulse. Again, the entire supply chain is interested in more CANDU. Mm -hmm. Labor mm -hmm. is interested in more CANDU. There's been a lot of like, well, at least they're building something. We'll settle for this SMR. That's how the, the kind of lack of ambition that that exists throughout this entire yeah, industry. Yeah, that's just loser mentality. <laughs> you know, like you're just like, yeah, we'll settle. Like, you're not wrong. You're nobody's not wrong. ever nobody's ever won, you know, gotten what they wanted when they come to the table with far less than their aspirations. Like, listen, we, listen, we were we were told that, you know, fighting for the provision of Pickering was bad for nuclear. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. you know. This is a $10 billion project that would filter through the supply chain. Do you think anyone in the supply chain is going, oh, no, I've got a half a billion dollar contract for 48 steam generators. That's just terrible. This is bad for nuclear. Right. Yeah, Do you think those yeah. 30,000 workers involved in the refurbishment are, going, oh, no, I've got a secure job for 10 years now because of this refurbishment. 
Of course it was good for nuclear. And of course, can do is good for nuclear. And again, I don't want to come across as an anti-SMR guy. There is a role, right? There's definitely I'm a role. excited by the BWXR. Like I'm yeah. like, yeah. I'm pumped. I think the yeah. TVA is even thinking about investing. I'm like, hey, you know what? As a first mover, it. as a first Hell mover, yeah. I think I think, you know, BWX 300 is, is going to be a, a, an absolutely pivotal player. You know, again, this is not untested technology. People keep saying, oh, this has never been done before. No, of course it's been done. We've done smaller scales of every reactor we've had. Mm -hmm. What is untested is the economics, right? We don't know if an economies of multiples is going to outdo an economies of scale, right? Like the whole thinking on SMRs is the product of very low ambition and a sense of what was possible 10 years ago. When we said, we're never going to be able to finance, we'll ne governments will never finance nuclear. Well, we just saw them do that again, right? Mm -hmm. Even a $1 billion commitment to a you know four or $5 billion can-do project would be monumental, right? Anyway, the thought was, we'll never get it financed. Grid demand isn't really going up as much as we thought, so we don't need big units, right? Only the private sector will be able to deliver nuclear because government's out of that business. Well, that's just been refuted, right? So the whole test case for going small as the panacea has has changed now that we're in a different world 10 years later. But we've become sort of, we've drunk so much Kool-Aid on this that it's like, that's we, we assume that it's the only viable way forward. And I have been, you know, encouraged by, you know, the nuclear solution starting to say, oh, large and small nuclear again. Large is back in the game. But if there's no one there fighting for the large stuff, if there's no one there being a champion of our national technology, which is the driver of our entire supply chain at present, there's a real risk that that we lose a national treasure here, a national gem, and yeah. that Pickering doesn't get refurbished even, and that we don't we don't build like the scale of what we need to do is enormous. We have a massive grid here in Ontario. You know, we can't we can't waste a site like that. We can do a one or two SMRs there, but. No, I was in I was in Hungary for a conference at the beginning of this month, and I was there to talk about the energy transition. And there were some people who were basically anti-nuclear on the panel and pro-renewables. And the thing that they kept talking about was technological lock-in. And what you're describing is, I think, what they were describing. But the problem with that sort of thinking, where it's sort of like, well, if you build enough of these reactor types, this is what you're stuck with you know, no matter what, and then you have all of these supply chain problems, it's sort of like, well, then the default is just fossil fuels. Yeah. Like that's, fossil fuels are the already technological lock-in. Yeah. Wind and solar aren't going to fill that in. No. They're not going to take over for that. So if you think some energy transition is going to happen over the next hundred years or so, like your job is to replace a technological lock-in with another. There's not just endless optionality forever. And that's not to th say that things won't evolve or change or improve or whatever. It's to take seriously the embeddedness of these industrial systems rather than to act like you can spontaneously provide tax credits for a variety of technologies and it'll just sort itself out for you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, all right. Final question. This one's going to be easy. What's going on? What's coming down the bike in decouple and where can people find more of your stuff like this report that you're working on right now? Yeah. Yeah. So decouple is expanding as always. Decouple studios is going to be putting out a lot more content. We've been able to fund our, our filmmaker, Jesse Freeston. He's got a bunch of new, exciting videos coming out. We oh, did yeah. this video uh, looking at the personal story of one coal worker's just transition from the North America's largest coal plant into the world's largest operating nuclear station at Bruce Power. I told the story of that coal phase out entertainingly using Bieber and Drake. 
So, yeah. You know, that, that video has done very well. We're over 200,000 views. Wow. Uh, you know, we're getting, you know, 10,000 plus downloads every single episode now. We're close to to 850,000 episode downloads in total. So we're kicking ass and, you know, we're being listened to by think tanks, you know, McDonald Laurie Institute, amongst the many others, Natural Resource Canada, people are listening. The head of United Arab Emirates nuclear program Hell met yeah. with Mark Nelson was like, I listen to you on decouple all the time, right? So the <laughs> podcast is, is really becoming what I always dreamed it would be, which was a sort of think tank for the world. I mean, and it's just, it's such an extraordinarily powerful medium and such an antidote to the bullshit of mm -hmm. social media culture, right? Where, you know, everything just degenerates into the lowest common denominator and you have no sense of a person's values or personality and you can just get nasty totally. with each other. You know, podcast is just the antidote to that and, and an amazing sort of social capital builder. So yeah, it's, it's growing as always. I'm going to have a lot more video content in the pipeline. And yeah, I mean, we're soldiering on, you know, it's nice to be able to do sort of a breaking, we, we do do breaking news stories. I guess one little thing I'm excited about is I'm not sure if you've been paying attention to a guy named BF Randall. Um, mm -hmm. He's at Mining Adams on Twitter. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I've had the pleasure of being a lot of people's first major podcast interview. I don't want to flatter myself, but I think you might have, it might've been your first uh, kind of podcast appearance back when we had you on to talk about the uh, the nuclear new deal. Yeah. I think it was my first in terms of energy stuff. All right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, but yeah. Isabel, Isabel's first podcast, you know, Zeon lights his first podcast, maybe Maddie Hilly. Anyway, I don't, I don't want to fluff my ego too much, but it's been really fun to be sort of the first mover on really exciting thinkers who go on to blow up, you know, just as you really have on the energy front. So, you know, there's just little, little small things like that, that I get excited about. So we're having him on this week to talk about heavy distillates. How exciting awesome. is that? The lifeblood of the world economy. Yeah, um, let's do it. Let's do yeah, it. Yeah, man. So just you know, continuing to educate myself. I gave a talk to a kind of an elite business gathering in Hong Kong, you know, ridiculously early hours this morning. And yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just exciting. And you know, strengthening and building kind of these, uh, these, these beautiful relationships with other content creators like yourself, like Doomberg and others. So the sky's the limit, but I'm going to answer your fucking question. And that is people <laughs> can find me at, at Dr. Underscore Kiefer. Kiefer spelt like reefer with a K. That's hey. a, a good way to remember it. And you know, the podcast decouplemedia.org. And you know, see for, if anyone ever wants to give me money, my yeah. only, my only income is the Ontario health insurance program as a full-time Emerge doc and all this stuff does take resources. So come to c4ne.ca. There's a donate button there. Smash that button if you like what we're doing because, uh, you know, we're making history up here in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. In the great white North. All right, brother. Thanks for coming on. This was great. And I mean, you're going to come back on again. So until then, everybody else, stay sharp, stay strong and stay radiant. We will see you next time.